Amen. It's the word of God. Amen. I'm encouraged to sing with you guys this morning, and I'm so, I'm so reminded that, that the world is really full of trials and difficulties, and when we have times like we just had where we can sing such a beautiful set of songs to God, it's easy to forget. But I want to remind you and ask you this morning, what do we do when the trial comes? When planes strike towers and thousands perish? When tyrants rage on the borders of freedom? When anxieties grip our hearts so badly that we're immobile? When darkness seems to be our only friend? When all our money seems to be gone and bills remain? When death brushes close to us or someone we love? When failure is the only option left to learn from? As Christians... The answer is simply, we pray. We pray. Let me ask you this. What do we do when the joy comes? When hope gets rebuilt on the ruins of downed buildings? When nations rise to the challenge of tyranny with great courage? When peace flows into our hearts and provides a path forward? When light breaks through the darkness and gets our eyes on the Lord. When hope shows us our financial needs get met in the Lord's timing. When resurrection assurance floods our minds and gives us life amidst death. When God's grace transforms all our failures into sanctifying righteousness. As Christians, the answer is still the same. We pray. The need for prayer flows naturally out of us as creatures made in God's image, made for friendship, made for intimacy, made naturally to depend on another, on something else. Can you hold fast, hold on, and hold up prayer to God when that first list of trials seems to never turn into that second list of answers that I just shared with you? Can you? True prayer in God can do so. True prayer, it can transform us. It can teach us how to trust God through whatever adversity we face. Now, any honest person anywhere who believes the gospel of Jesus Christ will lament to you and to me that prayer doesn't come naturally. If they're honest, they'll admit that prayer is difficult and that they don't do it enough. Or they don't do it as often as they wish. Am I right? Have you been there? Surprised at how poor or how pathetic your own prayer life has been? It's true. We as creatures are poor in prayer. But it is also true that God is rich in mercy. He remains providential, meaning he gives. He's our provider. He's our source of eternal joy. And so because God remains faithful and can pick sense out of a senseless prayer, we remain a people who pray and have great need of prayer. Now, in the book of Acts, we have seen and learned how the first believers preached through two sermons and one testimony of Peter. We've seen them preach. We have seen in the book of Acts and learned from these first believers how they persevered through persecution, how they continued. We've seen them preach We've seen them persevere. Now, 
We get to see how the first believers prayed. If you are like me, beloved, you need to be reminded of a few things concerning prayer to help your prayer life. Well, in our text this morning, we will have just that, the opportunity to learn about prayer. We're going to learn four points about prayer this morning. First, that we can pray. (laughs) We can pray. Second, why we pray. We'll discover why we pray. Third, how we pray. That is how we do it. And finally, we'll look at prayer's result. We can pray, why we pray, how we pray, and prayer's result. First, let's just establish. We can pray. This is something to look at. Now, we'll be chopping this text up in some ways this morning as we see our points clearly in the text. But for this first point, we don't need to look anywhere except the very first verses of our section here. Verses 23 and the first part of verse 24. Now, I won't make us read it again since we just heard it, but at the beginning of our passage, you want to note that some things have happened prior to this recorded moment of prayer, haven't they? If you're just now joining us in the book of Acts or you've forgotten, it's helpful to understand the circumstances that this group is in. Those praying in the passage here are the apostles and Peter and John and and a group of their trusted uh, core, uh, core members of the church. They've been arrested and have been released from their prison um, for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, specifically the resurrection of Christ, and causing a scene in the temple. But they, they were released with threats of violence against them. If they did not stop preaching and teaching the name of Jesus, they would be threatened with severe punishment. These threats were not empty. Now, there's a real trouble that's on the horizon and a real cost to be paid if these believers are to continue their ministry in obedience to Christ. What can they do? They face a choice in this text together, a choice to continue or not, a choice to obey or to disobey God is in front of them. Their circumstances are truly dire. They could face the same humiliation and death that Jesus faced. They leave and return to their friends, as I told you, this core group in the church that they trust deeply. And it's there that they demonstrate for us what we can do as believers today. We can pray. We can pray. The text is so clear, right? It says when they heard of it, they understood the details from Peter and John, what they do. They lifted their voices to God together. They pray. Do not make the mistake to look past this flippantly this morning, church. When we're pressed on all sides, when when facing the impossible, when threatened to be harmed, the disciples turn to their friends about their situation, and then together they turn to heaven, to their God. They do it in hope. We can pray. Consider your own life this morning, brother and sister. What's plaguing you in life? What has plagued you? What can you expect to come? Hardships and difficulties and troubles everywhere? Turn. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Frustrations and fights, heartaches and pains, losses and persecutions. We can believe, as we saw last week, that what Paul said to Timothy happened to him. What's happening to these can indeed happen to us. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Where do you turn? To the church 
and to heartfelt prayer to God is often overlooked by us. Sometimes we forget that we can pray. So this passage can correct us in this way. Notice they do not turn to personal anxiety concerning the persecution and and worrying themselves into certain decisions they have to make. They do not turn to some personal vice like a carnal lust. They don't turn to foods. They don't turn to sex. They don't turn to drugs or alcohol or other physical pleasures that could numb their decision or create some alternate escape for them. They don't turn to their own wisdom. They don't turn to their ability to craft some secret plan moving forward of how that they could do what Jesus said. And they don't have friends when they show up to tell them who encourage them to do those other things I just mentioned that would ease their worries. No, they have friends who hear. They have friends who then say, let's turn to the Lord in prayer. And what do they do? They take it to the Lord in prayer. They take it to God in prayer. There's a normal gut reaction among true followers, true disciples of Jesus Christ to pray about what we worry about. At least that's how it should be. That is something that we hold as a core in our church's discipleship at RBC. True disciples of Jesus, they pray about what they worry about. They pray about it. When difficult circumstances come, future uncertainty gets laid out. Hard decisions plague us in Christ. Any other option besides turning to God in prayer and casting our anxieties on Him is going to lead us to despair. It's going to lead us to be sinfully worried. It's going to lead us to be anxious to the point of disobeying God. I love what Corey Tim Boone said. She's a Holocaust survivor who wrote this once about worrying. She said, worry is like a rocking chair. It keeps you moving but doesn't get you anywhere. Worry, she says, does not empty tomorrow of its sorrow. It empties today of its strength. She finishes and says, Worry is a cycle of inefficient thoughts whirling around a center of fear. Beloved, when you look to the example of these believers, do you see that in the time of trial and worry and, and fear about what was to happen in their lives, they pray. We can pray. These first believers show us that when things get tough, We can pray. When tomorrow seems uncertain, we can entrust tomorrow into God's hand. God says sufficient for today are its own troubles. So what do we do? We can pray. But the passage doesn't just show us that we can pray. It also shows us why these disciples prayed. Look with me at verses 24, the rest of it in 25, and also verse 28. So I want to call your attention to a little bit, few verses down. First of all, they, they actually pray. And what do they say? Okay, this is why we pray. They say, Sovereign Lord. Okay, Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in it. Who, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. Okay, it's the Sovereign Lord. Now look at verse 28 as well. They pray and and, in part of their prayer they say to God for him to do whatever his hand. You see that? To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Why do we pray? Interestingly, our passage shows us the answer in the very first words that are uttered by these early believers. Sovereign Lord. Sovereign Lord. This is translated in different ways, but always the same idea 
in other translations. In the King James, it's Lord. Lord, Thou art God. In the NET, it's Master of all. In the NASB, it's simply, O Lord, indicating Lordship. And as we have here in the ESV, Sovereign Lord. All of these titles indicate sovereign power and that God is the one and only true God and that He is intimately aware and it includes even orchestrating these events. Their first thought, as they're seized with the desire to pray, they start their prayer to God declaring His control, declaring who He is, that He knows everything and what has happened. In this, we gather the why of uh, why we pray. So after declaring God as being, you know, the master of everything, they say two things about him. Notice in your text the word who. It's used twice in 24 and 25. They say, God, you are the one who made everything. And in that same verse, you are the one who speaks. You are the one who speaks the words. And they're talking about the words of Scripture, which we'll look at in a moment. And in that verse, they're understanding (coughs) that God has spoken and said that he's sovereign. Okay. Now in verse 28, as I called your attention to, they call on God to do whatever he wants to do and whatever he has planned to do because they know that he has planned it before it happened. You did not mistake that. Look again. Do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Now, it's no secret that a long-standing debate in the Christian church has left many Christians, I think, starving for truths like these two verses point to in our passage and oftentimes starves them in their prayer life. So I hope to remedy that. So there's this debate. And because of the debate fighting within the church about whether or not God is sovereign and man has a choice, okay? God's predestined plan and will versus man's, sovereign, man's uh, responsibility and choice has been hotly debated, and that is no secret. Because of that debate and fighting within the church for centuries, words like sovereign or predestined, like we have in our text, sadly, they immediately bring up controversial thoughts in people's minds. It robs them of the why, of why we pray. But please, let me bring up a big statement here for the sake of brevity on this point. I love what J.I. Packer said in his book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. That is actually true. He said this, that all Christians believe in divine sovereignty. All. All Christians believe in divine sovereignty. But some are not aware that they do and mistakenly imagine and insist that they reject it. Now, what gives that away? How can somebody be mistaken? What gives us all away, even those who would reject God's sovereign lordship or his uh, predestined plan to know everything that happens to us? The thing that I think gives it away is why we pray or the fact that we pray at all. The reason why these disciples pray in our text shows us that in prayer, there is an end to this persistent and troublesome dispute that we're bringing up right now about the free will of man and God's sovereignty, human choice and and God's predestining everything that we tend to argue about. The irony of the situation, Packer says, is that when we ask how the two sides, the person who says it's only man's choice and the person who says it's only God's, you know, sovereign will, that the two sides When we ask the two sides how they pray, it becomes apparent that those who profess to deny God's sovereignty really believe in it just as strongly as those who affirm it. We can tell by how they pray. That is because when we pray for healing or we pray for salvation of our lost friends or when we ask God for strength to endure, 
or for our situation in our life to change a little bit. We do so by declaring God's power, not our own. How foolish would these disciples sound if the reason why they prayed sounded something like, God, we are choosing for ourselves a plan to go forward and to keep speaking about you. And our will be done as we find boldness in ourselves, though we are scared. And Lord, they will stop breathing these threats when they realize in themselves what is wrong. And those who are lost, God, will witness us doing this. And then they will choose to believe in you and save themselves. They will soften their own hearts, God. And they'll choose to follow you. Nobody prays like that. Nobody prays like that. We pray, God, take away their heart or stone. Will you change them? I speak the truth to them. I can't make them believe, God, but you can. Will you save them? When we're in trouble, we don't declare to God and crying out to our need for him and say, God, I can do this. I can do it on my own. I, I, there's enough in me to change this horrible circumstance and get out of it. Nobody prays like that. No, we pray, and the reason why we pray is because God, in fact, has planned everything. Every day has written in his book, and none of them shall pass without his sovereign lordship over them. We believe that God hears our prayers. That's why we pray. We believe he's listening, and he bends his ear in his sovereign holiness to listen to the cries of worms, and he saves them. He loves them and he answers them. In fact, God planning this gives them the confidence to pray. Now hear me. We haven't answered how they pray at this point. We actually haven't talked about the how, which will show us that there is human responsibility in our passage. We cannot cast aside what God has called us to do. We have something to do. We have a will and we have responsibility in that. But I want you to see here before the why. There is always a balance in Scripture For now, it's clear that the reason why these disciples pray is because they believe in their hearts in the total sovereignty of God. Why do they pray? It's the same reason why me and you pray as believers today. We must appeal to a power that's higher than our own, stronger than our own, wiser than our own. One theologian said this, on our feet, we fight and we delight in debate, but on our knees, we are all the same and we all agree. Isn't that true? We all agree on our knees. It's not us. With us, it's impossible. With you, God, it's possible. So we see in our passage that we can pray. And in the example of these believers, we learn why. By the way, they talk to God, why we pray. Now let's look at how we pray together, how we can pray. Go back to verses 25 and uh, through 27. Before we say how we pray, let's look at this scripture again and see how they prayed. Um, again, we're going to chop the text up a bit for our point. I'm going to read two sections here. Uh, we'll read one and then, and then the other. But I want you to see in this, in this section that they pray Scripture first, and then they pray with confidence. That's the two things that they do, when they, when, how they pray. They pray Scripture, and, they, and then they pray with confidence. Okay. Look at verses, the rest of 25 through 27. Remember, they declare, God, you're sovereign. And then they say, who through the mouth of our father David, verse 25, your servant... David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. They pray for truly God is there uh, in this. There were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Okay, how did they pray? They prayed scripture. They prayed scripture. 
You may read this and think, I can't pray like that. That sounds awesome. Look how eloquent that is. That's word for word in the Bible, what they pray. They pray scripture. They pray for their circumstances in light of scripture. The disciples' prayer is thoroughly biblical and shows us the importance of letting, uh, letting what God has said be the content by which we say to God what it is that we need. Now, how many Christians think of prayer this way? Praying God's words back to him. I'll be honest, many don't. Do you, beloved? Do you think of prayer like this? One commentator made it really clear and said it helpfully. In the scripture, God is talking to us. And in prayer, we are talking to God. So scripture therefore teaches us the way that God communicates. Better to know how one communicates with you before you try to communicate with them. Right? Prayer starts with listening and receiving from God categories and words by which we are to speak to him. Maybe an analogy would help. I want you to consider an analogy that immediately has limits, of course, but I hope it's helpful. Think of an example of a husband who really wants to grow in his relationship with his wife. He wants to get closer to his wife. He wants to love her, and he has these good desires to want to get to know his wife deeper. He comes home, and then she tells him. She says, look, I feel most loved by you when you, when you seek to listen to me, when you sit down and you hear about my day, and we talk about my day and how it all went and what happened. And then when you hear me, and then you ask questions about those things concerning how it made me feel, that's really how it helps me. And so the husband hears that. Now imagine upon hearing this, clearly with no distraction, the husband then looks and says, looks her in the eye and says, I really hope my favorite football team pulls off the win tonight and me and you can sit on the couch and watch it and cuddle. What's his wife going to think? You didn't listen to anything I just said. I just laid it out for you. Ask me about these things. Do these things. Understand this. Ask this question. Say it this way. Sit with me for a while. And you came up with football? The wife would be upset. It doesn't take a, a rocket surgeon, a rocket scientist, brain surgeon, whatever, right? It doesn't take uh, a rocket surgeon to realize that her husband has entirely missed the mark. It seems a bit odd for him to say back to his wife after so clear of instruction what to say. Now, though that's extreme and an example of a failed you know, marriage communication, oftentimes I think this is exactly how our prayers to God end up being given to him. We hear God in his word. He articulates his will for us. He reveals his mission to us. He directs our obedience. He calls out our sin. And sometimes we end up with a loop repeated empty prayer, the same prayer marked by what we feel rather than what he has said. That's not how they prayed. No, we need to have faith like children, right? Childlike faith. Do you know how children learn to speak? It's the same way that a baby Christian should learn to pray. Children learn to speak back exactly what they hear, right? They don't hear over and over again a dad saying, say dada, say dada, say dada, and then look at them and for the first time say, onomatopoeia. They say dada because they've heard it and they've heard it on repetition till they model it. They hear, boom, and they say, boom, right? That's an onomatopoeia, by the way, right? You hear something, and you say, oh, boom. I say what it sounds like. We, as spiritual babes who grow into Christian maturity, should understand prayer to God on the same terms, just like the way our baby children would cry out to us 
and, 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 and say the things we teach them so we can cry out to our Father, but we must do it with Scripture. Scripture here, specifically for them, Psalms 2. So that's directly quoted from David, Psalms 2. That Scripture gave these early believers the words to explain God's plan. Right? I mean, remember, why did they pray? They knew God had a plan. He had predestined it, determined it. So they needed to be wise about it. So they got in the word of God. They had been in the word. This thing unfolded. They said, we see it. Right? How cool would it be if the rest of your life as a Christian was marked by that? I read the word some six months later. That thing happened in my life. I was ready. I had language to talk to my God. God, you, you showed me that months before. Here I am. Right? This is what they did. The scriptures informed how they prayed entirely. Okay, now look at verses 29 and 30. So now when they're ready to request of God, look what they say. They say, now, Lord, look. <laughs> Underline, look. God, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus how do they pray? Well, they pray scripture. But secondly, they pray in confidence. They pray in confidence for the preferred outcome. Now, we know that they will actually endure worse than threats. Okay? They will be beaten. And eventually, uh, most of them will be killed. But I want you to see that before that, part of praying in confidence, praying scripture is, is that they're being changed. They can't see it, but they're being changed. They're being uh, perfected. They're being taught through this how they pray, and that has a lot to do with it. Notice they ask God to look, okay? They don't say, God, please destroy and fight back against these people who are against you, okay? They just say, God, just look upon it. Just take an interest from heaven, and that'll be enough for us. They're not asking God to stay the hand that wants to beat them. They'll gladly bear those stripes if they have to. Because God has taught them in their souls that if God would just look upon it, they declare. If you'll just look, they have great confidence in God that they'll get through this trial. Notice that they ask God to help them continue. They don't ask for permission to quit. They don't ask for the persecution to end. They don't ask for an army to destroy the religious leaders. They ask to remain faithful in their preaching. These men example for us the truth that believers in Christ, we grow through flame and fiery trial. Prayer becomes the language of war for us. It is the walkie-talkie that we pick up on the front of the battle line and we call in to our captain who's in the heavens and we understand that even though it looks like the, the line is faltering, we're going to be able to hold it. He's going he's to take care of us. Prayer becomes the language and for them, it actually becomes a conduit for sanctification. Oftentimes, prayer, you think, changes your circumstances. I got news for all of us. In the Bible, prayer changes you. <laughs> it doesn't change God. Sometimes, sometimes not. It doesn't change your circumstances. Always, true Christian prayer, it changes you. I saw this example in a powerful film I'd recommend to anybody. It's called Shadowlands. Uh, starring Anthony Hopkins. The, the, the movie follows the story of C.S. Lewis, the famous Christian apologist and author. Uh, he's played by Hopkins. And in this movie, Lewis is struggling with the reality of suffering. He 
struggling with the reality of suffering. In the film is his wife, Joy, that he has uh, married. She contracts cancer, and she's going to die soon. C.S. Lewis is a person in the movie who's taught. He's taught others a lot on the subject of suffering in the movie, but he's never actually really suffered himself until now. And a fiery trial is depicted, much like the disciples find themselves. And there's one scene that pulls at the heart of why we pray and how we pray and how, how prayer changes us. In the scene, Lewis, he's an Oxford professor. It's, it's biographical. Um, he has a Roman Catholic uh, partner teacher that's named Christopher. And Christopher, throughout the whole film, he mocks Lewis because Lewis was Anglican. There's a difference in denominational beliefs um, in that time and throughout the film. But at one point, it kind of crosses the line, and it's about the prayers that have been offered. Uh, it's at a point in the movie where it's pretty certain his wife's going to die soon. He's feeling the weight of pain, like you and I have probably felt when things are dire and we're praying and God seems not to listen. So in this, film, in, in this movie, Harry, another fellow, is there, and, and Christopher comes, and he begins to mock Lewis. He mocks him about his prayers. Now Harry, loving his friend, says, says to Lewis, he says, he says, Christopher can scoff, Lewis, but sympathetically he says, but, but listen, I, I know how hard you've been praying, and now God is answering your prayers. In other words, it, it may be God's answer for her to die, so trust that. He says it somberly, since the implication is, is that God, God answers, uh, you know, maybe his wife dying soon. And without missing a beat, Hopkins, playing Lewis, just turns, and he looks him in the eye, and he says, he's bewildered, he says, that's not why I pray, to change my circumstances. That's not why I pray, Harry. He says, I pray because I can't help myself. He says, I pray because I'm helpless. He says, I pray because the need flows out of me all the time, waking and sleeping. It doesn't change God. It changes me. It's a powerful scene. Lewis understood prayer. That movie's a biography. In Lewis's biography, we learn, and as he wrote on this, when his wife did end up dying, he wrote The Problem of Pain and, and um, A Grief Observed. Uh, two books came uh, very helpfully out of his work from that pain. And he says things like, pain is, pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Why love, he asks, if, if losing hurts so much? In the movie, he says, I have no answers anymore, only the life I've lived. Twice in that life, I've been given a choice as a boy and as a man. Boys choose safety, the man chooses suffering. And then he says this, the pain now is part of the happiness then. That's the deal. How do you talk like that? How do you talk confidently through a trial and through difficulty? Well, I think you change. Trials change you. And one of the main conduits that God uses in sanctification is prayer. Through prayer, God can change and affect us. He, he can get his word deeper into our hearts. Why do we pray and meditate on the word of God? The psalmist says, I, I do it, I hide it in my heart that I might not sin against you. That's a behavior change, right? I'm not going to sin anymore. I've been sinning. I'm going to hide your word in my heart, and it's going to perfect and purify and cleanse and you're going to change me. Prayer changes us. So we become more like what we depend on. Prayer is dependence on God. And we see these disciples show us, like Lewis's example, man, they prayed the scriptures. And they prayed with confidence that God was changing them. 
Even if their circumstances weren't changing, he was enough. So how we pray matters, why we pray matters, and we can pray. So let's close this morning by seeing prayer's result. Look at verse 31. So when they had prayed, um, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Ask yourself, what is miraculous about this verse and the result of prayer? It would seem obvious to us that the physical manifestation, okay, the, the, the attestation, God's attesting uh, sign by God to shake the house in which they're gathered, that seems like the miracle. But what did these men do to shake this house? Nothing on their own strength. How could they demonstrate to another person, pass on to another person, encourage another believer by this subjective rather than objective sign that they just saw? They cannot. They can't. Just like me and you cannot pass on in a sticky way a faith to another person based on our own personal experiences. Your own personal experiences are, are yours. They are ours. And they're encouraging, yes, but they're subjective. You see, we get to witness this subjective miracle where God shook the house, and I do think it's amazing. I would have loved to have been there. But it's not the real miracle. Okay, it's not the real miracle that happens in this moment. It's kind of like this. The song of faith, if you, were, if you can just maybe think about your past, if you have any experience with hymns and songs and spiritual songs, you can probably remember a lot of churches build their whole mission around this feeling nowadays, but you can probably remember a seriously authentic, intoxicating moment where you sang a song to God. It seemed like all the rest of the world faded away. And just for you, in that one moment of emotional ecstasy, built on truth, I'm not saying, I'm not discrediting it, a very true moment, you worshiped God. And you probably thought, if I could do that for forever, it'd be enough, right? And you would tell me about it passionately. you tell others about it. But have you ever tried to tell someone how much you felt that? Or how much when you were reading that story, you, you explain it to them and, and you're like, you see? And you look at their face and they're like, I mean, yeah, that, that's cool. You're like, what? I, that, that changed my whole life, man. Like, that, it was huge. Like, it was awesome. And they're like, I mean, yeah, it's cool. It's not theirs. They can't own it. Why? Because it's subjective. It depends on them. The conclusion in 31 is not, look, the walls shook. It's not that. The most amazing thing, the, the true miracle, is that these men continue to be filled with the Holy Spirit and continue to preach the Word of God. It's the Word of God being preached in boldness. It didn't stop. That's the miracle. It's God's de declaration that flesh and blood pass away, but the Word of God stands forever being fulfilled in this moment. Have you ever really been challenged by someone to not speak concerning something that you want to speak about? For most of us, the answer is no. Not many of us have ever really experienced such a persecution that's in this text. The context here is, is that they have, these people have such a control over them that they hope that this is enough, the threats. Thankfully, me and you still live in a fairly religiously free society in our country. We're allowed to have full access to our own faith, our own understanding, and our own freedoms. And we can speak to others about that whenever we choose, as long as we're not violent. This common grace of God isolates us, me and you, from the type of miracle that's present in the text. 
We get excited about shaking walls in our churches in, in America today, but we don't get super excited about the Word of God preached boldly. And that's contrary to the context and the hope of this. We get distracted by what we deem the miraculous, and all the while we miss what God is saying is a miracle. He has continued to speak from the beginning to create the whole world that was plunged into darkness by our evil sin, and he's redeemed it. How? Through his word, through his word, through his word. And he sends the word, and the word lives, and the word dies, and the word rises, and the word ascends, and the word will return. And little word preachers go out and preach the word in little word houses where they gather and they hear the word, and the word stirs them up to affection and good deeds. And they go share the word with their lost neighbors. And God continues to build and build on his word. And he says, everything burns up in the end, but my word lasts forever. Right? That's the miracle. The miracle is the word doesn't cease. Let's see miracles for what they are. It is amazing to have stories where the house shakes. I admit that. That's part of the human experience. God loves us enough to give us subjective things. Hold on to those subjective things. Let them be a word of your testimony. Cool. But don't make them the thing. They're not the thing. The thing is, is that somehow you didn't perish if you be in Christ. That's the miracle. Somehow the word preserves you. And prayer points to that. Prayer resulting in God's word going forth is right prayer. Maybe that's a sermon in one sentence, right? Prayer that results in God's word advancing, whether that's personal or whether that's public, that is right prayer. If that's not what your prayers result to, consider. Consider our, our, our sermon. Okay, here's four quick applications about prayer's result. Prayer result is, is that it maintains us through the constant filling of the spirit. That's how prayer is. Okay, it results in a constantly godly life, not a perfect life, but a life that's being perfected. Second, prayer is uh, the result of prayer is that we find Jesus's promise that he's our friend and our brother to be true. Prayer should point you continually back to Jesus. Right. Yes, his word, but but him, him and to remember in your prayers that he loves you. Third, prayer's result is confidence in the soul. It's confidence that Jesus still tells us to come, give him our burdens, and trust him as we go forward. And I think fourth, prayer results in that we can cast our burdens on Jesus, knowing that he cares for us. Do you know the care and sympathy of Christ? As we sing about his cross in closing, do you believe the wondrous work of Jesus' cross, the glorious hope of his resurrection? Okay, do you believe the staying power of his love? Do you trust in the steady hope of our return to him or his return to us, the reality of eternity. If you don't, repent and believe. If you do, beloved, keep praying. Keep praying. We can pray. We know why we pray. We know how to pray. We believe that authentic prayer has real results in the soul. Let's pray and then we'll sing. Father, I come to you in prayer in closing. Before we confess our sins, before we take the Lord's Supper together, God, I pray that you'll teach us to pray and not just spit off wish lists. Father, um, I pray you'll show us that in prayer, half of it's listening, hearing in your word, and then praying it back to you. God, you say in Matthew 6 that our Father, you, knows everything that we would ask before we ask for it, and yet you still want us to ask. Help us to see that that's because of fatherly love and concern. It's because you care about us, God. You care about all our problems. You're not a dad who tells us to go over in a corner when we get home that we're busy. You're, you're the father who let us, lets us sit on your knee and, and share our deepest burdens, and you're there for us. 
So God, help us to believe that you're a father. That a father who died uh, on the cross for our sins, who rose victoriously, and as we're about to sing about, one who bled and suffered, and that when we bring our confession to you, God, you forgive us. Help us to realize all that, and what we sing and what we see in the Lord's Supper, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.